You're listening to Bitter Strawberries. I'm Rosanna and I love writing, rambling and exploring my emotions. Bitter Strawberries is a creative treasure chest of all my thoughts about emotional health, why it's so frequently glossed over and like emotions themselves, suppressed. Join me and you too can be a small seed in a bountiful field of juicy and perfectly imperfect strawberries. All united in a desire to raise awareness and start conversations about things that are deep and meaningful in life. No small talk allowed. Hey everyone, it's Rosanna and you're listening to another episode of Bitter Strawberries. Today's episode is all about challenging the conventional cancer story and my experience of that um because if you've been listening to the podcast from the start you'll know that my whole reason for starting bitter strawberries in this platform was to explore emotional health and really dig deep into emotions um after getting diagnosed with cancer uh seven or eight months ago because that's what I've been doing a lot of and I guess this topic is something that's really been on my mind a lot over over the past few months and I've kind of done a lot of reading around it talked to my partner Reese about it talked to my family um yeah different people in my life it's it's something that I think isn't talked about a lot and if you've not had that experience of being diagnosed with cancer um or going down a very traditional route in terms of your treatment um yeah I don't know how aware people will be of this but I think there'll there'll be lots of people out there listening who can relate to what I'm saying in terms of this like conventional cancer story and I guess what I mean by that is the cancer we see and how it's presented to us in the media and in the world um so I'm thinking of like the first things that's like if someone says the word cancer to you what are the first things that spring to mind and it's probably someone who's lost their hair um someone who looks really sick someone who's in and out of hospital um wearing headscarves kind of a a cancer research ad on tv or a race for life um type thing it's it's like all that you know it's it's like asking for donations like we we still haven't found the cure it's one in two people are diagnosed with cancer now it, it's kind of all those those sorts of messages and that was the that was what I was really aware of when I got told those words I just like I suppose that's immediately where my brain went um but I I suppose I, I quite quickly discovered that like I didn't relate to a lot of those narratives and that's not to say that that's not to dismiss or deny like anyone else of their experience um and pe- and people who do identify with that but it's to say that there are plenty of other people's stories out there and there's a different side of cancer and different ways of treating cancer um and different different approaches people have to deal dealing with it that aren't aren't shared that aren't voiced that much and you kind of have to yeah dig around to find them and i think it goes it it kind of says a lot about how we talk about like illness uh, like chronic illness in society in general and things like that but cancer in itself has got a very particular narrative and certain types of cancer have that more specifically so with breast cancer I would say that like when I when I got told I had breast cancer again the things that like came up for me were like thinking bright pink pink ribbons um in the I actually like laugh thinking about this now but in the waiting room at the hospital where I first got diagnosed uh, there was a giant I'm from I live in Manchester and the B is like the symbol of the city of Manchester and there's this thing where there's all these like B murals all around all around the city and in the hospital where I um I got my results there was a giant pink B in the waiting room like this big pink v statue with a bra over its eyes <laughs> and like that honestly that v symbolized so much of my like hatred and like kind of 
internal anger and frustration at a lot of this like cancer story because it was just staring at me all the time every time I went back for an appointment it's just like lurking in the background um and it's it was surrounded by like this kind of little volunteer like run cafe and space and again not criticizing people who run that stuff like they're volunteering their time and that's great and um usually it's because they've got a really personal connection to that but the things they sell in that shop is like a lot of like pink leopard print and scarves and um I don't know like like gifts and sort of like memorabilia to do with cancer and to do but specifically to do with breast cancer um and yeah I think straight away seeing that I just was like I I don't associate with any of this stuff and is that because I'm being really judgmental and I'm like oh like that's a certain type of woman and I've got a stereotype of like a middle-aged or older woman who gets cancer and I, I know exactly like what she looks like and I don't like I don't see myself as that person was I being like quite like yeah quite negative I guess and quite judgmental and being like I'm different to this I don't want to associate with that I think that was one thing I was aware of and I kept questioning that like why do I have this this one like image in my head Um, and actually also I'd say in terms of like obviously there's the gender aspect of it but like racially I associate breast cancer with like white women like in their like 40s and 50s that's again the and and actually that was like the majority of people who were part of like the first facebook group i joined like this breast cancer uk group um seemed to be a part of that demographic so i feel like again that it's not a fair representation of everyone who um who gets diagnosed with breast cancer but like so that b i'm going to use the b throughout this podcast as like a an emblem like a symbol of what's wrong with this narrative in my opinion and um it was something I spoke to my counsellor like again if you've listened to a previous episode I spoke about having counselling for three I think three to four months um like after I got diagnosed and it was one thing I spoke to my counsellor quite a lot about and I talked about the B and I was like I don't know what it is but this whole like narrative around cancer feels really icky to me again specifically breast cancer but it just it doesn't sit right with me I don't I don't like the way people talk to me about it I don't like the way it's presented within the hospitals and within those spaces and she actually said my counsellor said something really helpful to me where she was like that again she said it feels like it's quite a narrow reflection of a lot of different people who get diagnosed with this and that's not really fair so she was agreeing with me in that respect. But then she also sort of said, I guess those are things that bring people like hope or bring people a sense of community or bring people uh, a sense of sort of, yeah, I- identity really with like something they're going through that can feel quite or very isolating a lot of the time. And that that softened like my view of it a bit. And I was like, oh, actually, I understand that. And it's okay if I don't identify with that, I can create my own version of that if I need to, whatever whatever it is. So, yeah. Um, so I, beca- I, I maybe beca- became more aware of why I was thinking in that way. And the... Um, but uh, alongside that, really, was <laughs> a lot of... Since, like, when I found out I had cancer and I told people a lot of the reactions I got from people were so, were were obviously, you know, all coming from a really well-intentioned place and wanting to reach out and support me. But so much of that was also, I guess, kind of clouded by this, again, this narrative, this conventional story. So I got a lot of messages being like, you're so brave, you're so tough, um like oh you're so courageous like you know you you're gonna be amazing like you've got this gal like you could do this like this is like all this almost I suppose a lot of it goes um speaks to like that like modern feminist empowerment like I don't know sort of like boss girl narrative (laughs) I'm not I'm probably not describing that in a great way but that it's like you can you know, you can overcome anything because you're just so tough, brave, strong, you're a warrior, you're a fighter, you've got this. Um, 
and th- like those messages were repeated to me from different people but they kept like cropping up in different forms and I I pay really close attention to that to that because I was like I don't really that doesn't resonate with me I don't I don't feel that way I don't feel like a warrior or like a fighter or that cancer's this big battle and you'll I think once you become part of like the cancer community of people who've been diagnosed you realize that a lot of people find issue with some people love those like that identity and those labels and they they might get tattoos of it they might like speak in those terms but there's a lot of people who don't feel comfortable with that and don't want that to reflect their experience and I suppose I'm counting myself as one of them and following on from that and the fact that I don't really find those narratives helpful I want to explain a bit more why I think that is and I think a lot of it goes back to feeling like it's not a fair representation or a very true reflection of of lots of people who've been diagnosed with breast cancer and and this sort of narrative probably repeats itself but like adapts and, and presents differently for different types of cancer um but I think the the breast cancer story is really strong and you so I even think like certain celebrities and people spring to mind so like people I think even people reference to me they're like oh like Sarah Hardin like the one from Girls Aloud like she had breast cancer I'm like yeah and then she died from breast cancer like it's like all these you're very aware of people who have and haven't survived and that can be that in itself creates like its own type of pressure and its own type of you know or it's like oh well oh they talk about breast cancer like on loose women a lot or on like on this program or this and it's it's still to me it still all sits within the same um kind of community and kind of portrayal on on tv and in mainstream media um and like I don't know. I again, I think of like the pink tutus, the pink ribbons, the like pink balloons and all that stuff for as part of like things like race for life. And I can completely see why that could feel so empowering to someone because they could be like, "Oh, all my friends, all my family have got behind me in like fighting this illness and trying to overcome it and I I feel supported and they're contributing to a greater like the kind of greater research and um, funding into finding a cure and that you know so I, I get I completely get where that's all coming from I suppose because my experience with cancer has been so different to that um, traditional like chemotherapy radiotherapy surgery like cycle and experience um, that's part of why it doesn't like fit for me um, and maybe doesn't fit for other people listening if you've been through something similar so next i want to talk about the privilege of having cancer and those words might be like incredibly difficult for someone to hear because they're like the privilege of having cancer like how can cancer be a privilege hear me out people i'm just gonna say that um I'm fully aware that like it's not a privilege for a lot of people it's a really devastating like horrific illness that lots of people experience with like lots of tragedy and people have very strong attachments to it because of like losing family members or you know whatever they've been through so I'm not again just want to clarify I'm not here to to dismiss that or like take that away um what I mean by cancer is a privilege and maybe that's not a very the the best way of wording it is that cancer is like out of all the kind of chronic illnesses in the world cancer has the biggest um backing as in it's got the most funding the most research the most money being pumped into it and it's everywhere like you don't you're not short of kind of like cancer hospitals and um you know new treatments coming out there's all there always seems to be something happening around cancer and compared to like a lot of 
other illnesses that aren't as well as aren't as um like publicly profiled or don't have that kind of attention grabbing nature to them um and, and maybe it is because it's so widespread but i believe that there's lots of other illnesses that are equally as widespread that don't get um yeah that, that don't get that publicity and i think it's good to question all these things because these have become like societal norms and it's like why is that the case why is it that cancer kind of has that that gold medal status above everything else that it gets so much investment and yet there seems to be so much mystery and um and lack of understanding and lack of cure and um around it i i've always found that like since i got diagnosed that i've really had to like dig deep and research a lot um and research in places that i would have never thought to have looked before because i find that narrative so so interesting that i'm just like this can't be like i think a lot of us take it as fact we take it really factually and we take the statistics as like cold hard statistics and we're like one in two people will now get cancer within their lifetime this percentage this can type of cancer has the best or worst percentages of survival um this kind of treatment has the best you know it's all those sort of things that are just accepted as truth and fact and like well this is the way it's going to be and it does I don't think I think in order for society to change how we talk especially and I'm speaking specifically within the UK um maybe and maybe within the like western world like for us to really I think have a more a better understanding of cancer where it comes from and what like in my opinion what I think can be done to overcome it um we we need to broaden that conversation and we need to challenge those stereotypes and those kind of narratives um and yeah I I suppose when I say it's a privilege I, I do mean that like um I I've I've experienced it personally it's been a priv it's it's been a privilege for me in ways that might sound really strange but like when I told for example when I told my employer and my workplace that I had cancer the reaction I got was so strong and so like oh my god you know we've got to put all these things into place for you whereas I imagine if someone had come had had gone to them with a different illness that isn't as widely known about um and isn't as widely kind of feared as cancer that they wouldn't have had the same response I'm I'm only guessing but I I have kind of seen that in different workplaces it's got a really strong people people are so scared of cancer and scared to talk about it that it's almost like automatically you granted this like my my counsellor referred to it as like the cancer card she's like it's like oh like you can wave your cancer card sometimes and I felt comfortable just to say talking about it in that way with her I sort of initiated that but it's that the cancer card like frees you of so much stuff like it's sort of for the first time in my life I was like able to not do things that I didn't want to do that I've maybe felt obliged to say yes to in the past but because I was like well I need to prioritize myself I need to prioritize my health and looking after myself like no one's gonna question me not doing something because I've got cancer they're like oh god like she must be going through such a tough time um we don't really understand it everyone's scared of it it could get a lot worse like of course that's that's like your like your ticket out of doing x y and z if that if that makes sense um and I think it's my my friend um produced a podcast called sick babe which is really good and I'd really recommend everyone to listen to it and did a really good episode called holding the cancer card with Pippa Frith um you can find that on Spotify and yeah I'd I'd recommend listening to that because it's like Pippa's experience is different to mine but it's good in terms of they talk about this this cancer privilege and holding the cancer card and um yeah in in a similar way to to what I'm explaining so I know you've all been waiting for the goss the big juicy goss the nitty gritty okay Rosella you keep saying that you (laughs) 
that you didn't do the traditional route in terms of your cancer treatment. So what did you do? Well, where do I begin? (laughs) Um, And you can really hear my nervous laughter now because I'm like, oh God, like people are actually going to know and this is terrifying. So I don't know how many people I've actually told jokes. It's, It's really not that big a deal, but I suppose it is quite different and I'm I'm quite comfortable in that I've sat within communities of people who have treated and dealt with their cancer in a similar way to me, virtual communities, like a lot of these are people I've connected with online. So I know that there's other people out there who have done this, but it feels quite big to like, I suppose I've told a lot of white lies if I'm being really, this podcast is all about being honest, to people in my life who I've have feared won't fully understand my decisions and choices and I've been so afraid of their reaction that I've not yeah I've I've not kind of told them the truth fully um and that so that in itself I feel quite like bad about but I'm trying not to feel bad about it because the only reasons I did that was to protect myself in a really vulnerable state at the time and and again it's it's not comfortable to be the outsider we're like as a human species we're wired and developed to be part of a pack and to be part of a community and that's part of survival so as soon as you step outside of the norms of that and do something different people are always going to question you going to challenge you and isolate you effectively like I, I felt isolated um but it's really important for me to yeah to say what happened so I was, um, as I said in my first podcast episode, I was diagnosed in November 2022 with triple positive breast cancer, stage two, grade three. And I, my initial, the initial um, like prognosis and what was going to happen to me was that, um, or protocol, sorry, I should say, was that uh, I was going to have... a few months of so I had like I had to have different scans and like I had an MRI scan and a mammogram and a biopsy so all of that happened I I went along and had all of those because they were within part of them were uh, part of my original diagnosis but part of them were like happening within the days of me getting my diagnosis so it was that was all like stuff I didn't even have time to really think about um and then the plan was that I was gonna have I think three to four months of chemotherapy um, to try and um, kill the cancer effectively and min- or reduce the lump, um, surge- followed by surgery, followed by radiotherapy for a few months, followed by um, endocrine treatment, which is hormonal drugs, so anti, like estrogen-blocking drugs, basically. So you might have heard of, like, tamoxifen, um, or Herceptin, which is an injection. And um, yeah, because my cancer was hormone. When I say triple positive, I mean it was the receptors on the cancer cells were hormone positive. So for estrogen and progesterone, so they do stuff to try and stop it from coming back by giving you these drugs. Um, and that wasn't all, guys. That, that sounds like a lot <laughs> if I'd have had all of that. But that wasn't it. I was also meant to have... Um, fertility treatment so because the chemotherapy would affect my ovaries well they'd have to they said and they phrased it like turn off we need to turn off your ovaries before chemotherapy um so they give you drugs to do that um to protect them and then um it can affect you yeah your fertility chances in the future um depending how the treatment goes so they were going to do like egg preservation with me um that was something I was like quite ready to agree to and yeah it was a very different the picture of what was meant to happen or what I what the doctors and the nurses had like what my consultant had set out for me was very different to what actually happened so I um initially just like took all the information bear in mind this was given to me on the day I found out I had cancer and it was so hard to comprehend I didn't really know what any of it meant it was all just so scary and then within a few days my like I was just so upset and so broken and I didn't have 
I didn't want to look it up. Like the, the only things I was like Googling were outcomes and that was the most frightening thing. Um, I wasn't kind of doing any other research apart from trying to find online communities of people that I could just like pour all my emotions out to because I was so devastated. Um, but my, while this was going on, my mum was actually doing quite a lot of research and my mum's going to come on the podcast at some point, which I'm really excited about because uh, she is a very wise, wise woman, in my opinion, and I, I love her very much, um, if she's listening. <laughs> and she, uh, like, to put it into context, I grew up in a very, I would say, pretty alternative family, as in, like, we had um, a less traditional approach to, like, medicine and health and more... I, I really hate the word alternative because I don't think that's a very good reflection of what it is. It's more natural, holistic approach. And so, for example, my um, we didn't, yeah, we we didn't really have anti. Like, I've never been on antibiotics. We didn't really. We had some vaccinations when we were babies, me and my brother, but we didn't have like the majority of vaccinations through school. And I know that even saying that to me feels quite scary because I know loads of people disagree with that and that's fine you're entitled to your own opinions like but um in the same way that I am reminder um <laughs> but yeah that like I'm just saying that's that was the context so we kind of came from a family that had always looked at health and treating illness in a, a maybe a different way we didn't go to the doctors like I very rarely went to the doctors for anything and again, not saying that anyone should avoid the doctors or avoid hospitals. I think, like, they're necessary within society. Like, we need those people and we need that those services to be there. Um, but we were always... We didn't have this, like, these beliefs, like, forced down our throat. It was just the way in which we grew up. But I feel like, yeah, that's important context to have. So, like, they... And they... My mum and my auntie, like... Uh, practiced homeopathy which I can explain more about in another episode and um, my it was actually like more of a long line within my family of I think my great-grandma um, used to sell herbs like for, like for medicinal purposes and things like that so it's it goes back within our family and I know like for a lot of people within their families and their ancestry and things like that like they'll have similar stories where you know it was more commonplace in the past to use lots of different um I suppose like integ integrative holistic um healing treatments than it than it is now like now it's very much like for most people it's like you go to the doctor you, you get painkillers or medication and that's the the sort of protocol um so yeah those so all those that that was all going on in the background in terms of like that's the way I've been brought up but I didn't in the context of cancer I didn't think well those are even options I thought cancer is such a serious severe illness that there's no cure for that how can you possibly treat it with any of those things so I was very like prepared to go along the conventional route and the treatment that I was being prescribed by my consultant but my mum um yeah she she spent a lot of time researching a lot within the first few days and weeks and months after my diagnosis. And I'd started to change. She started to recommend that I change things within my life. And she was like, well, you know, we don't know. Let, let's take our time with it. Because um, I think that's one thing to point out is that it feels like a massive rush when you get diagnosed with cancer. You're so There's so much fear around it and around discovering a tumour and that the tumour is going to grow and that it can rapidly increase um, and that it's going to spread to other parts of your body but actually like the more you read about it the reality is that though that a tumour has usually been lying within you for a long time and it's been developing over a long time it's not something that happens overnight it's just that when you find it your kind of head goes to that place to think oh this has just appeared and this is so dangerous and I need to get it out of me um, but I, and I think that's one thing that I would criticise is that you're not encouraged to take the time to think about your options. I I didn't really feel like I was really given any options. Like I was just given this very set treatment plan, um, and I understand why that's the case because I think particularly the 
cancer treatment in the UK, uh, we have the NHS, National Health Service, which provides um, free healthcare at the point of access for the whole population. If you choose to have it, we pay taxes for it. It's like there's so uh, there's so much within the NHS that I believe in. Um, I believe healthcare should be free. And but I think there's there's so I mean the NHS is in massive crisis and has been for years anyway and critically underfunded and there's all you know there's str- all the strikes going on at the moment people I'm sure are very aware of of that and everything that goes along with that but I suppose what happens when you have a national health service um, is that you have very standardized treatments for things very standardized protocol and Whereas if I look to America, which is actually where I found a lot of people that I that had a more similar experience to me and made more similar choices to me, I found it really, really difficult to identify people within the UK who were even exploring other options. It was like near impossible to find where those communities exist. Um, and that's I found in individual people, but it's a lot it feels a lot more underground than it maybe is in America. And I think that a lot of that goes to back to the fact that they have a privatised healthcare system and there's a much clearer divide between private and the rest, you know, all the other alternatives. And there's more um, naturopathic doctors, there's maybe more awareness of that and more discussion of that because people are paying for a service and they're, and through insurance, like, you know, it's, there's, and again, there's also, I want to point out, there's still, a big thing around privilege within all of this because people have some people have the privilege that other people aren't afforded whether that be financial whether that be time whether that be location and like family support and social ties and things like that there's so many things that affect our choices that we're often not fully aware of and I I want to like acknowledge my own privilege in that because I think what I'm describing I know not everyone could do and I know not everyone would have the freedom to do so i'm yeah i'm I'm very aware of that when i said my mum did a lot of research in the first few days weeks months of um, me getting diagnosed uh, i'm going to talk about the impact some of that research had on my decision making and and what um what i changed in my life so I guess the first one was um, diet. And yeah, I kind of hate the word diet because it feels really restrictive and loaded. Um, but I just mean I changed what I was eating. And that involved mainly cutting out processed foods and refined sugars. So I tried to go, well, I say go back to, I don't really remember a time where I was, I, I think I had a really healthy upbringing in terms of food. My mum's very like, very conscious and aware of like, of food and getting like local produce like try buy organic um but she's always been a big believer in that and again there's lots of privileges we've come with, that come with doing things like that and making those choices but I think that's um yeah that was one of the first starting points was I just cut out a lot of junk basically <laughs> like um biscuits sweets cakes fizzy drinks junk like takeaways um and like I won't be I won't be careful and say that, you know, all I I think like I enjoyed food enjoy food as much as the next person. And but f- I think food for me had as it probably does for many people, has um a much deeper like emotional connection and I'm gonna explore that in a future podcast episode in more detail. So yeah, I, I was probably unhealthier in ways like to do with eating than I realised. Um so I tried, to, and even like the processes I was using to cook things, I changed. So I stopped like frying things at high heat. I started steaming um, more stuff and eating more like raw, like foods in their raw state and making more like salads and things like that. Um, and I think if I'm honest, I probably was like under eating for quite a bit, but that was, it was almost like an immediate detox to try and get my body into a better state um that might sound like it it sort of like contradicts what I'm saying but yeah the uh, 
I, I think I would like to talk about this at a different point because it's more, it's quite in-depth, let's say. Um, but some of the, like, anti-cancer fighting foods that you can have are, like, the most, like, it's it's kind of where your brain would obviously go. It's like fruit and veg. Like, fruit and veg is so, so powerful. Um, and so many herbs and spices have so many, like, anti-cancer fighting, like, powers to them. Um, that They are, like... The, the fruits and vegetables of the earth like that's what is the most natural thing and it kind of makes sense to me that that's what has those like na- those natural powers and um yeah so like one thing was cruciferous veg so like broccoli cauliflower um a lot of green veg and fruits like blueberries blackberries like things like that have like really um, good properties and so I started yeah I changed all of that and that changed like within the first few days of me getting diagnosed but more on the recommendation of my mum and me not fully me being like oh well I guess this will make me quote unquote healthier but I don't really know why I'm doing it and now I understand a lot more of the reasoning behind that but if you speak to any or at least in my experience when I spoke to any oncologist or doctor or nurse associated with my um treatment in hospitals they we'd ask like oh is there anything you'd advise in terms of nutrition because really there are things you should avoid with certain types of breast cancer or you should limit like alcohol is a big is a big part of that I stopped drinking alcohol as soon as I got diagnosed and um yeah and note that like that wasn't really discouraged like it was just like oh, well, you just need to eat balanced food, you know, you just need to eat balanced meals and there's nothing you should be avoiding or you shouldn't, like, stop yourself from enjoying food because this is a really hard time for you, so you should... And I I get... I also get where that that narrative comes from, but it is quite difficult when... To me, that is a big thing that people can change individually within their own lives. Um, And it's empowering to be able to cook, like, good, nutritious, healthy food for yourself and it's almost going back to basics of like, well, that's what humans would have been doing for centuries and centuries. And we've kind of lost our way by through convenience and through ultra processed food and things that are easy and quick and don't take much time because we're not, some of us aren't afforded that, always afforded that luxury of time in the kind of crazy capitalist, like busy world that we live in. Um, But like being able to take time to actually, do those rituals of like of making a good meal and what are the components of a good meal and how am I making sure making sure I get enough protein or enough iron or enough of this and thinking about all those different elements but we're not we're just really not taught anything from a young age most people aren't especially not in school and I think like I know medical um students get so such limited training around nutrition that I just don't feel like that factors into um health and chronic discussions around health and chronic illness within the medical industry as much as it should do it's all about prescribing medication um and quick fixes and things that all like relieve you of all the symptoms but it's not really treating the root cause of the issue um so yeah that was so like the food and the no drinking alcohol was like a big immediate change for me um and like I was very I suppose I was very sedentary um, I have been quite sedentary at home for quite a long time. I wasn't really doing much exercise. I've gone through like periods of my life where I've done like different different amounts of exercise. I was really into dance when I was at uni and I, I was part of a dance society. I was like doing that five times a week at one point. But unless I'm like, I find something I really love or I'm being made to go to it, like I've booked on a class, I've, I think I, sh- I struggle with the motivation to do exercise in the first place. Um, and my job had made since lockdown had become very like remote home based working, and so I was just sat on my laptop a lot all day, and that was something that really had to change. And my mum really encouraged me. She was like, "Just getting out on walks every day. She's like walking is like one of the best forms of exercise. You don't need to do anything, um, like kind of out of the ordinary or like be like a big like weightlifter or push yourself to like these extremes. Like you can just." incorporate like I think what what I'm trying to say is I started to build more daily habits that then stuck later down the line and then I found more of my groove with like what suited me best and what suits my lifestyle now um and 
yeah, I was also lucky that I live right next to a park. I had access to green space and was able to go into that every day. And that like provided its own benefits in other ways. Um, So this is, so this was part of, yeah, like food and exercise was a big part of the natural treatment um, or some of the, what we, what my mum and I felt we could do to, I suppose, like take control of the cancer. Um, And I could, what's amazing, and I'm being completely honest when I say this, and this is what I, well, I actually have proof of this. Um, I felt my true, my Truman. <laughs> Sounds like I was going to say the Truman Show. Maybe this is all a bit like that. Um, <laughs> I found I felt that my tumor, which is on my right breast, was shrinking. Like I noticed a noticeable difference. Quick edit at this point, just to say that this was proven that my tumor was shrinking because. I had an ultrasound just before my surgery in January and that was two months after my diagnosis and the tumour was significantly smaller than what it was on the first ultrasound. So I this gave me more reassurance that I was on the right path and the, chi- the changes I was making um, were all helping. And this was over, I think, the first two months, um, but that's when I most radically changed all the eating and no drinking alcohol and like and also I was gonna say I did I suppose there's a lot of extra stuff that went around this in terms of I started drinking filtered water I stopped drinking tap water so we bought a, a like a proper water filter I started drinking loads of herbal teas like that were really like green tea um I tried like turmeric like things like that I'd have yeah I incorporated a lot more like raw garlic and spices and herbs into my cooking um but I also tried to eliminate any they're called xenoestrogens I think I'm saying that right uh, or xenoestrogens and that's where it's like man-made synthetic stuff that mimics the properties of estrogen like the hormone estrogen but your body can't excrete it and detox it in the same way it can with like naturally occurring um estrogen it's it's harmful as well so like that's in stuff like like people just again I had no idea but it's in like makeup it's in so much skincare because there's so many like toxic ingredients within stuff so I just like got rid of pretty much everything and I I used to be quite like into makeup and I was like no like well I don't want to not wear this or even like deodorants like perfume stuff like that and household sprays cat scented candles like there's so many and this might sound like overkill and like a bit ridiculous to someone listening but I suppose when you're faced with something like that and you start to realize that actually all these things are like hormone disruptors and you your cancer is hormone positive and you can control some of that you start to take action around those things and it doesn't seem so weird and surreal they definitely did at first um but yeah so that was that was a big part of it and then we my mum and I um especially my mum like she'd been reading quite a lot of books as part of her research and using PubMed which if you've not heard of it is a really good um free resource it's basically like an online um search engine that allows you to look up any uh like medical literature uh, that's not and it's not all the medical literature that comes out that's funded by big pharmaceutical companies so there's a lot more like independent studies and reviews on there and it goes you can find stuff for really specific types of illness or types of disease or things you're looking at and just by the words you type into the search engine like google it generates all these articles that might have explored or done tests and things like that so you can actually i'm not saying you can rely on like every study to be completely accurate and telling you what you should do but it gave me more confidence because I was able to see that oh actually there's a wider body of literature out there of research that people are doing that doesn't get the profile that maybe like drugs that are promoted in terms of cancer treatment do because it's not funded by these pharmaceutical companies it's looking into other treatments so that that was reassuring because I was like well this stuff does exist it's out there and it kind of reaffirmed like what like some of the or yeah reaffirmed some of the decisions I was making and why I was deciding to do that um but yeah my mum had been reading some different books and one of them was called 
naturopathic oncology um, an encyclopedic guide for patients and physicians by a guy called Dr. Neil McKinney. And it, she, I remember buying this book and it honestly, it looks like a huge textbook. It is a huge textbook. And it goes into detail about natu- naturopathic treatments for all these different types of cancer. And this is from someone who was like a former kind of mainstream conventional oncologist. Um, and so he advocates for like a lot of integrative treatment in some aspects. So he's like, oh, you could like, in some cases he's like yeah chemotherapy is the best option or radiotherapy is the best option but these other things can also help and he lists things like food diet um herbal supplements um yeah exercise like thing things like that and that's it gives you maybe like a bit more of both sides or a broader picture around things so once i saw her reading that and then i started to read chapters of that especially on breast cancer and the bits that related to my type of cancer again i was like oh there's other options there is other stuff out there so we'd at this point we delayed i was meant to start chemotherapy almost like immediately and we had like a lot of back and forth with the doctors around this where i went to the christie in manchester and i i felt quite pushed by two of the oncologists there into like starting immediately um, and again, that's just because that's their protocol. That's like what they specialize in. And that's what they do. Um, but I wasn't like, you sign this big form or it's like a three, four page document where you basically agree to all the side potential side effects of chemotherapy. And some of them are really like guaranteed because they're so commonplace. Um, and it's such an intensive treatment and so like even reading that, I was like, I'm not happy to sign this. I'm not happy to come in for one appointment for half an hour, sign this document and basically allow my body to go through all of this. Um I want I want to discuss it more. I want to and there's not I suppose there's not room for that within the NHS a lot of the time. There might be in certain trusts in certain hospitals, depending on where you are, but it didn't feel like there was really for me. And that's not to say some of the the consultants I spoke to weren't really weren't incredible weren't intelligent weren't like trying to help me weren't giving me the best knowledge to their expertise but I I remember feeling this like uh internally feeling such a strong feeling that I was like this is my body this is my decision and I get to I have the final say over this and that to me was the most important thing and that's what kind of helped to determine all of my decisions because I was like I'm the priority here not what they want to do and not what their protocol is just because that's what they're used to doing um, and how they've treated other patients. Talking about treatment I want to mention something called the 1939 Cancer Act which people may or may not have heard of there's a lot of controversy surrounding it, but it's basically an act um, that states that there can't be any advertisement of cures for cancer um, other than like chemotherapy, radiotherapy and surgery. And um, I've been looking this up on something called Full Fact, which is like a independent fact checker thing. Um, because I wasn't sure of like all the nuances around this. And obviously it goes back a while if it's 1939. Um, and it says that like their verdict on what this law actually means is that there's they say there's no law in the UK that limits cancer treatments to these three options, chemotherapy, radiotherapy and surgery. Um, but the law stops people advertising cures to the public. So it, it stops people... Yeah, stops people advertising cures to the public, but doesn't stop the discussion of them. So I'm fine. I'm not going to get arrested, thank God. Um, <laughs> but I think I think what would be interesting to do at some point, or what I'm going to look more into, and I haven't really had the chance among everything that's been going on, is how much that law's had an effect on the treatment um, of cancer throughout, like since the yeah, well, since the 1940s, I guess, up until now, and. I get partly why it's there in terms of so they say they say in this on this full fact site they say um if someone 
if someone claimed that a specific type of diet plan cured cancer, they would be able to publish an article in a scientific journal explaining their proposed treatment under the Act, but they would not be allowed to advertise their diet plan directly to consumers and say that it cured cancer. That's kind of understandable, but I suppose where it's limiting is that it's still protecting those main treatments as the only treatments and the only treatments that are advertised because they are they are promoted and advertised indirectly and directly through big cancer charities like Macmillan and like Cancer Research as the only option and then it's the treatment plan that's available on the NHS and there's chemotherapy is a drug and there's pharmaceutical companies that create drugs and the I think maybe you get what I'm saying. There's a whole cycle there. Um, So there is, like, there's big money in that. And I'm not saying money is everything in this instance, but maybe it is. (laughs) Um, But I don't think that should be, like, I think it's problematic because it's, what I'm trying to say is it's still stifling mainstream discussions and mainstream awareness of a whole lot of other things that can be done to reduce cancer or to get people into remission like it, it's and um, I just I've, I honestly really don't think we actually understand what cancer is and I'm not a scientist or a doctor so people might be listening to this and being like well you definitely don't understand it you're just someone who had it and you've just gone down this weird hippie path that's fair enough if anyone wants to think that I'm not going to be offended I promise um but I think I'd like I just I'm really trying to say that it's important to question where every narrative come from comes from my narrative and this and this mainstream narrative. I think we can't just accept things as factual and as the truth. Like we all, we always need to be looking and exploring, like what's behind that, who's behind that, um, and that sort of leads me into talking about some of the like alternatives that I tried because I didn't really explain to my consultant that I was looking for alternatives but I think he sort of knew that the whole time because I wasn't going along I wasn't agreeing I wasn't readily agreeing to everything that was prescribed to me and the the treatment plan that was outlined so in the time the kind of time delay where I said I turned down chemotherapy first and said I wanted to wait to make a decision on that and I eventually agreed well I agreed to have surgery I asked to have surgery before chemotherapy which I did actually end up having surgery and I'm not even sure if now I would have that but at the time that's what felt right for me um and yeah they were in agreement with that but the the, again I so I had to wait a while to have my surgery scheduled and that that waiting time gave me more time to read and research with my mum and to look into different stuff. So we went to see um, a herbalist who was recommended to, well, was sort of recommended through my auntie's herbalist because my auntie sees a herbalist. And uh, she was like, she even said when I went to see her, she was like, you know, only doctors can treat cancer. And I think this goes back to that 1939 cancer. She can't claim to cure it. But weirdly, we didn't even know this when we got in contact with her. She'd also had, she was, I think she was in her 50s. She'd also had breast cancer and she'd had the kind of opposite type of breast cancer to me. She'd had triple negative, which traditionally has a worse survival rate um, and is less treatable. And she, um, that was eight years, like it was eight years ago that she'd been diagnosed with that. She'd also just had surgery and then she kind of walked away from all of the conventional treatment. Um, I think she was studying to be, she was training through the College of Naturopathic Medicine to be a herbalist at the time. And um, yeah, and that was kind of her pathway. And she was just like, I never went back. And I remember thinking when I met her, I was like, oh God, that's so irresponsible that she never went back for a scan or to check. And I completely get that now and again maybe maybe something for another episode why I could explain why I don't want to go back for any scans and people might think that's really really strange like you don't you need to know what's going on um yeah but let's save that for another time uh, but she 
yeah, I went to see her and it was just, I think it was really helpful that she'd had a sort of similar experience, like she'd been diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, and she, what she did that the doctors didn't do because it's a whole different, if you don't know much about like herbalism or naturopathic medicine, a lot of it relies on, and every practitioner is different. It's like doctors, you'll get good doctors and bad doctors. You'll get good naturopathic doctors and bad naturopathic doctors and you I suppose you've got to find your fit and I only actually went to see this herbalist for one appointment not because she wasn't good but just because I was in a stage of discovering lots of different things to help me and it was just part it was just one route and one opportunity I guess and it led then led me down different paths um but she yeah when I went to see her she asked a lot about my emotional health and she that yeah naturopathic doctors or herbalists like tend to look at the whole body um everything's holistic so it's like well nothing it's not you haven't just got a tumor in your breast that's separate from the rest of your body like cancer's a a chronic whole body illness um so like you know were you experiencing stress that's something I was asked by her and by this other herbalist that I spoke to on the phone and I found, yeah, I found that question really interesting. So I was like, I didn't relate stress to illness in that way, which I definitely do now. Again, another episode coming on that. Um, but yeah, so she asked me about that. She looked, she does something called iridology where she looked into my eyes. Um, she did, um, what else did she do? J- just like a, a kind of really full, really in-depth overall health check and it was like asking about my family members uh, like clo- with close family members um asking about my kind of my diet my lifestyle exercise my medical history um my yeah emotional health like all of this it was like really comprehensive and it took me ages to fill out these forms but I was like oh this feels really this feels right like it feels a lot more thorough than what I'm being offered at this like world leading cancer specialist hospital I'm actually getting to go in depth and have those conversations and obviously part of that is because she had the time to do that and they don't and it's a different way of approaching um, illness Uh, but like it worked for me it gave me the belief that there were bigger things I could that I could be doing to change this and different ways of addressing it and I I got to hear from someone who'd taken a different path and that actually going back to that whole like that cancer narrative of you're so brave you're so tough you're such a warrior but for me those are the things that felt like the bravery because they're really stepping away stepping out of your comfort zone and stepping away from social norms and what doctors and nurses and the medical industry and like society expects you to do it's just like that I think that's brave. I think that takes real courage because you risk social isolation, basically, and uh, yeah, and not being accepted. And so that's that's interesting to me that that's how I now relate to it. Um, and yeah, so I, I saw her for a bit. That was really helpful. And then other things, I suppose, came through a lot of learning came through books that I read, and these books. I'm going to mention what some of them are and I think they're great and they served a purpose at the time but I would read caution like ever getting too attached to one theory or one way of doing things because I think you'll always find faults with it and things you don't agree with so I think it's all about taking what resonates with you what matters to you and what you believe in from all these different sources because everyone's got expertise in different ways and then leaving the stuff that you don't agree with because I I would get I think in the aftermath like the immediate aftermath of being diagnosed I was just looking for someone to cure me I was like please help me please get me out of this situation um I don't want cancer I don't want to die like just I just need someone to yeah who's got this magic cure and actually no one had it no one like not not even like the the only way I found that is within myself as cheesy as that sounds but it's so true like I've had to do a lot of deep work and I'm still doing a lot of deep stuff to uncover that but I I have so much faith and trust in myself now more than anyone else to to 
heal heal and deal <laughs> with my cancer um that I don't need to ask anyone else's expertise I'll go to other people for different information and then I'll take the useful bits from it but I won't I won't ever be like oh this person is gonna like end all my pain end all my suffering because no like really no one can do that um and you shouldn't be looking to one person or one one type of treatment for all the answers so some of the books that um my again these are things that my mum and I looked into but and um, were recommended to me by other people um but there's uh how to starve cancer by Jane McClelland so she's um she's British and she I think she wrote this book in like the early 2000s and it's based off she had cancer maybe twice different types of cancer I think um and she had all conventional treatment like chemotherapy radiotherapy it didn't work and then she or bit bits of it maybe were more effective um but then I think she was maybe I think she was diagnosed as being like terminal um and she managed to reverse her cancer and she was part of she she what she sort of her method of dealing with that her book's like quite complicated and quite dense but it's really really interesting um she worked out her own treatment plan of how to starve cancer by using off-label drugs um so like older drugs that are really cheap and inexpensive and not these big kind of pharmaceutical um like drugs that are that cost loads of money um and she like so they were it was it's a metabolic approach to treating cancer so it was like tackling the different pathways that a cancer cell takes it's very, again too complicated for me to explain in this episode um but her and her her thing was about making lots of lifestyle and emotional changes um or de- like kind of dealing with the emotional side of cancer and that so that was quite a like it's quite a revolutionary text i think if you get into that side of exploring options like a lot of people tend to read that book or go to that book and I ended up on something called the care oncology protocol which is a clinic based in London um a private clinic but they offer like fairly affordable um treatment options in terms of prescribing these off-label drugs for people who want to take that route so I did that for a bit but I stopped that after a while because I also felt that wasn't it was it worked for me temporarily but not as a long-term solution um and then there's also the crispy cancer book which is quite he's quite famous he's quite a big youtube social media personality uh, a guy called chris walk in america who he had i think it was bowel cancer maybe i sorry i feel like i'm getting all this information wrong but uh stage three and he um reversed it with diet exercise but he also had surgery so people again people are like oh it's controversial because you still had this so you can't say you fully healed your cancer with these natural means but he profiles a lot of different people on his site and through his through the work that he does who've taken more natural or integrative approaches to their cancer treatment so it's it's trying to like spread that message that there are alternatives so books like that were really helpful in the beginning because I think it gave more it 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 meant that those approaches carried more weight than just like my mum being like I think you should do this like oh this is cool like th- not this is cool <laughs> but I've read this and like I'd recommend you do this because I I trusted her because I tr- like I trust her a lot but I didn't feel 100% certain because I was I was scared in the situations where I was speaking to consultants and oncologists because they were filling me with dread and fear, like with the words they used and what they said that I was basically like playing with fire and I wasn't going to, you know, by delaying treatment, by not doing what they wanted me, what they'd set out for me, that my life was in like grave danger and I was at risk of things all going wrong. And so, yeah, it was... It was all I was always constantly battling between these two what felt like two extremes, um, but each each person or I found or each book that I read like resonated with me in different ways, and I think I've got to a point now where I really know which bits make the most sense to me, and I kind of 
yeah, take or le- take things or leave them. Um, and I just have quite an intuitive sense about stuff now. I've realised there's so much more to say on this topic than I originally anticipated. So I'm going to do a part two. And yeah, I hope this episode has been interesting. And if you're intrigued to see what happens next, um, tune in for part two. I'm Rosanna. This is Bitter Strawberries. I'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.